Friends, if you would, please take your Bibles. Open with me to Hebrews chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 1 through 3. As we officially start diving into this first chapter, I invite you, if you're able, please stand and honor the reading of God's Word. The Lord Jesus once said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The grass will wither and the flowers will fall, but the word of God will stand forever. Pray with me, please. God, we publicly confess this day that this is the very word of the living God. It is not man's best effort on paper, but it flows from the lungs of God, that all Scripture is God-breathed. And we are excited to come to it today because we know we're hearing from you, that you have something to speak to us today from this written final Word of God. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you take this Word and plant it into our hearts and our minds that we might see Christ, that we might glorify you that we might be encouraged to love you and to love our neighbor even more. Remove the distractions today, Father, and let us focus upon thy word. Grow us in thy grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Friends, please be seated. Well, right before we dive into these first three packed verses of Hebrews, Let's start out this morning by just doing a a, a few minutes of review of what we learned last week, of our introduction, our orientation to the book of Hebrews. So if if you were here, it's a quick review. If you weren't here, hang on, because you're going to get last week's sermon and a little, little take on it. Last week, we learned that Hebrews is the handbook to the Old Testament. What that means is the author of Hebrews, he takes some very difficult passages from the Old Testament, and he explains those passages to us through the lens of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can see that what the Old Testament author was actually talking about has everything to do with Jesus, and he teaches us to understand that in the book of Hebrews. And it's clear that the author of Hebrews loves the Old Testament. And he's writing to a group of people that love the Old Testament. They simply needed someone to explain it to them through the eyes and the lens of Christ. You see, these, this audience that the author's writing to, they were a Jewish audience. They loved the Old Testament, but these were Jews who heard the gospel of Jesus Christ 
and had turned from their sin and embraced Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. And they were on the path of following hard after Christ. But as we mentioned last week, somewhere on that path, they got disinterested. They got their eyes off of Jesus. They thought that Jesus wasn't good enough. And as they were following hard after Christ, walking towards Christ this way, what did they do? They started looking over their shoulder to their past. And they said, you know, we remember how great this Mosaic law was. We remember how nice these sacrifices were and the the rituals in the temple and, and the priesthood. Let's keep our eyes on this because this whole following Jesus thing is not all we thought it would be. So they got distracted in their walk. They started looking to the left, to the right, and even behind them to their past. And they thought about giving up. They thought about walking away from Jesus and returning to their past. So what the author of Hebrews does is he writes to them to explain to them Yes, your past, your history is great, but there's something better in Jesus Christ. You think you know who Jesus is, but you really don't. And I know that because you're starting to turn around and look behind you. You know a little bit about Jesus, but you don't know everything you need to know about Jesus. Because if you knew everything you needed to know about Jesus, you wouldn't be looking to your right or to your left, and you certainly wouldn't be looking behind you. So when the writer of Hebrews writes to these Jewish Christians, he says, look, I don't want to do away or discard the Old Testament. Rather, I want to tell you that the Old Testament is an unfinished story. It's something that needs to be completed. Last week, we used the example of the Karate Kid. You've seen that movie? When Daniel goes through all the the pain and the suffering of getting picked on by the Cobra Kai and he does all of this training, what would it be like if you watched that movie but you never saw the All-Valley Under-18 Championship when he beats Johnny? What would it be like if the movie just cut off and didn't have that climactic ending? You would know, I missed something. (laughs) You would know there's something out there that needs to be done. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying to these Jews. Yes, we have this Old Testament, this full story of Noah and Adam and David and all these Old Testament saints, but that story's not complete. It needs to keep going because there's all these promises back here that are fulfilled in Christ, and Christ actually fights the battle on the cross against sin, death, and hell. So we learned this picture last week of what I call progressive revelation. That in the Bible, God slowly pulls back the curtain and opens up and teaches us about himself. And you see how the curtain opens just a little bit with Adam and a little bit wider with Noah, a little bit wider with Abraham, and then Moses and David and the prophets. What would happen if we just drew a line right there between the prophets and Jesus and said no more? We would be missing the climax, wouldn't we? We would be missing the crescendo. The author of Hebrews is coming and writing to this audience and saying, I want you to see the end here. I want you to see Jesus, the crescendo, the climax at 
the very end. The Old Testament is just the beginning of the story. But Jesus is the climax. Last week we also learned about shadows and realities. Hebrews 10.1 says that the Old Testament law is a shadow or a foreshadowing. But the reality actually came in the New Testament in Jesus Christ. Here's what that means. In the Old Testament, we had the shadow of the presence of God coming down and manifesting itself in the tabernacle. We had the shadow of sacrifice with those bulls and goats being sacrificed and the blood being shed. We had the shadow of Aaron the high priest coming in behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies. But all of this anticipated something better, greater, more superior, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the literal presence of God that came down to dwell with man. Jesus is the sacrifice who shed not every year like this was, but shed once for all his blood. Jesus is the priest who doesn't need to sacrifice for himself, who rips curtains in half and gives you access into the throne room of God. What's better? Jesus is better. The reality is better than the shadow. So the question today, not only for this original reading audience, but the question for all of us today is this. What's your view of Jesus? I mean, what, in, in your mind, who is Jesus and how big is that in your mind? Well, some of you might say, as most people would in church, well, well Jesus is my Savior. Yes, yes. Or Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, He is. Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, He is. But is that all? Is there any more to who this Jesus is? Because sometimes I just think about Jesus as my Savior. I don't see Him as anything else. And that makes me turn my eyes to the right and the left and even look behind me and get distracted by this world, not thinking that Jesus is good enough because something else must be better. The writer of Hebrews is coming to us today and says, let me expand your mind. Let your mind and your heart grow in your understanding of who Jesus is. Yes, he's your Savior. Yes, he's your Messiah. But he's so much more than that. Friends, my prayer for you, for me, is that every one of us would just fall in love with Jesus all the more because we see him, yes, as Savior, but he's so much more than that. And that's what this text teaches us today, who Jesus fully is. Because many times our view of Jesus is just too small, it's just too limited. And this author and Lord willing, this pastor today will tell us the full scope of who Jesus is from this text. Here's how I'm going to do it. If you look at the back of your bulletins, there's three main points. Today we're going to look at God's old way of speaking. Secondly, God's new or better way of speaking. And then we're going to zoom in on not one, but seven. Seven acknowledgments of the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a couple things before we, we get going here. First of all, 
I'm going to give you a lot of Scripture today. You can look on that bulletin for all the Scriptures. I'm not going to go through every one of those. That would take us a long time. The ones I don't go through, I challenge you, go home, open your Bibles, get that, get that outline back out and go through those on your own or with your family. Secondly, I want you to see a really neat relationship. I, I try to have memory clues for lots of things. When we talk about the superiority of Christ or the doctrine of Christ, my memory clue for you is chapter 1. Chapter 1 of three books. John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1. You're going to see all three of those chapters tied together today. Our call to worship today was a responsive reading from Colossians 1. Our text today is from Hebrews 1, and you're going to see me weave John 1 into all of this. So when you look for the supremacy and the doctrine of Christ, what's the memory clue? Chapter 1 of John, Colossians, and Hebrews. Let's dive into Hebrews. Look back at verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Let's first look, friends, at what I call God's old way of speaking. And as we look at the old way and the new way, let's look at timing, audience, and means. Think about this with me. The timing of God's old way of speaking. If I were to say to you, when did God first speak? Uh, the answer is already on the board, isn't it? You know, so the teacher has the answer behind him, and you're looking past the teacher to the board, and you're like, Ragey, I got the answer. But think about it. When did God first speak? We don't have to look very far, do we? Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And here it is. And God said, let there be light. Friends, God has always been speaking. He's been speaking since the moment he created the heavens and the earth. You know, there is a heresy out there that affected our nation specifically a couple centuries ago called deism. Deism teaches that God is like a clockmaker, that he reaches out and he winds up the clock of the earth, of humanity, winds it up, and then he pulls his hand back just to let the clock tick on, his own, on its own, never to be involved with that clock. That God is not interacting with his creation. Friends, you see the destruction of deism in Genesis chapter 1. Because not only did God create the heavens and the earth, He's reaching down into the heavens and the earth and speaking. Let there be light. Let there be vegetation. Let there be fish. Let there be man. Be man. God is reaching into His creation and speaking. And the Bible says that God did this in many ways. How did he do this in many ways? Well, he spoke to Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, didn't he? He used a burning bush to speak with Moses. The Bible says he even used Balaam's donkey. Imagine that. But God spoke at many times and in many ways. And then secondly, he spoke to a certain audience. 
God spoke to our fathers. Now remember, he's talking to a group of Jews, and he's saying to them, I spoke to all of your fathers. I spoke to Abraham. I spoke to Moses. I spoke to David. I spoke to all of Israel actively. And then he tells us specifically the means of which he spoke. He spoke by the prophets. Now let's just stop a moment and talk about what a prophet is. Simply put, a prophet is one who is called and designated by God to be God's spokesman. Now, okay, teaching moment. What's the difference between a priest and a prophet? We're going to talk about both in Hebrews, so let's go ahead and just lay it out right now. I was listening to R.C. Sproul, and man, he had such a good, uh, such good instruction on the difference between a priest and a prophet. He said they're both similar and they're different. So the way a prophet and a priest are similar is that they're both mediators. A mediator is the man in the middle. So a prophet and the priest would both stand in the middle between God and God's people. Okay, so they were the man, men in the middle. So how are they different? Let's start with a priest. You see, a priest would speak on behalf of man and God's people to God. So a priest would face this way. With the testimony of man behind him, the priest would come to God on behalf of man. And you can see that's a ministry of intercession. The priest would bring prayers. The priest would bring sacrifices. He would go into the Holy of Holies with blood on his hands, with blood dripping down because he's representing these sinful people. He's representing his sinful self, and he's coming with the blood of a substitute on his hands to come to a holy God. The prophet is different in that he faces the other way. Again, the priest faces this way, right? Testimony of the people behind him coming to God. The prophet faces the other way. The prophet is still a mediator. He's still the man in the middle. But he comes with the authority of God behind him to speak to the people. That's why when you read the prophets, you, you hear, Thus saith the Lord. Because what this mediator is bringing is not his own words, but he's bringing the words of God facing the people. He's preaching and declaring God's will to the people. That is the work of a prophet. So they're both mediators, but they both face different ways. So friends, what we see, and you see it on the screen, a prophet who is one who is called and designated by God to be God's spokesman. Now, what God is saying here, is that in the Old Testament, long ago and many times and in various ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And we know who those guys are. We've read our Old Testaments, people like Moses and Samuel, people like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Obadiah. They're saying things like, thus saith the Lord. They are declaring God's word to the people. And God even wrote it down for us, didn't he? We have these words of the prophets in our Bibles. And what we learn is that was God's old way of speaking. 
And the Jews he's writing to are very familiar with this, right? They understand this. This is just a friendly reminder. Here's God's old way of doing it. But now let's transition to our second point. Because this text teaches us God's new, or what I call, better way of speaking. Let's look at the first part of verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Okay, again, let's look at three things, timing, audience, and means. A moment ago, the timing was long ago, right? But now, God's better way is in these last days. Now, let's take another moment for learning and teaching. Let's talk about this phrase, last days. This is where Dr. Kruger is really, really helpful, if you have his book. Uh, he's very good at going, going through this. He, he, he says, so many people have a misunderstanding of this phrase, last days. For many of us, we think it's maybe the last two days before Jesus comes back, or the last two weeks, or the last two years, or the last two centuries. And he's saying, no, it's not the quantity of time that the author's talking about. It's the quality of time the author's talking about. And this might be revolutionary for many of your minds. So he's not thinking about a, a, a set of, of days or weeks or years, the quantity. He's talking about the quality of time. Here's what he means by quality of time. The last days are the days when we have the fullness of Christ and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The last days means that God has fully revealed himself. Think about it this way. All these folks in the Old Testament that we just listened a moment ago, they're giving promises and they're waiting on promises, right? They're promising that Jesus is going to come. They're promising the Holy Spirit is going to come. And they're waiting on those promises to happen. But now, on this side of the cross, the author is saying, you're waiting no more. All of those promises about the coming of Christ, they've been fulfilled. All of those promises about the coming of the Holy Spirit, they've been fulfilled. The quality of what you have is way better than what they had. You're not waiting on the promise, you're living in the promise. And these are the last days. Meaning these are the days that are full of the coming of Christ, are full of the coming of the Spirit all those promises that these people talked about and were waiting on, you're not waiting on them. You're living in them. It is a blessed time to have the fullness, the fullness of the reality of the coming of Christ. Here's a verse to ponder, John 8, 56. Jesus even said this, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. In other words, God is making all these promises to Abraham and his heart is just pumping because he wants to see what God's talking about. And God gave Abraham a special blessing and gave him a picture of what it was going to be like in those last days as Jesus describes in John 8. So think about it. We have it better than Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and the prophets because we have the fullness of 
of Christ and the Spirit. Now, who's he talking to? In this verse, verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Us. Who's he talking to? When the original reading audience, the believers, the Jews who had embraced Jesus Christ. He's talking to Christians, which means for you and me, if you have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, he's talking to you too. He's talking to believers. So quick application here. Now that we know that he's talking to believers, here's a question for us. Are we going to listen? Are we going to incline our hearts, our ears to God and listen? Because God, God is saying something, and then how is he saying it? By his son. Remember, long ago, he spoke by the prophets. But now, he's speaking how? Through his son. The prophet was a mediator or a representative for God. Christ is not only a mediator, but he is God. <laughs> He's not a representative of God. He is God in the flesh. Which is better? Jesus is better. And how do we hear the words of Jesus? Well, God wrote them down for us in the words of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts, and Revelation. God has taken the apostles of Christ and written letters to His church. We know it as the New Testament. So what we learn here, friends, is that God has spoken through the Old Testament, but even better, given us the final climactic story in the New Testament about Jesus. But let's take a moment and let's revisit that parable that Matt read just a moment ago. You remember that parable? It applies here. That parable taught us that there was a master. He owned a vineyard and he leased it out to several tenants. And after he leased it out, he went away to live in another country. And after a while, the master said, I'm going to send some of my servants back to get the fruit from my vineyard. So he sent his servants back. And what did the tenants do? The Bible says they beat one, they killed another, and they stoned even another. So the master said, well, that didn't work. Let me send my son. They'll respect my son. So they sent his son, and what happened? The tenants killed the son in order to have the inheritance. You can see where we're going here, can't you? You see, with Jesus and God, the Lord our God, who owns not only a vineyard, but the whole earth. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The Lord owns the earth, and he says, I'm going to send my prophets into the world. Certainly they'll hear the prophets. Yet like the servants, the prophets were messengers. They were only representatives. They weren't the son. And what happened? The world beat them. The world killed them. The world stoned them. So God said, 
Oh, I'm going to send my son. And by the way, that's what makes this the last days. Is that we don't just have the anticipation of the son. We have the fullness of the son. I'm going to send my son. The son is not just a representative. He's the full expression of God. The son is not just a messenger for he indeed is the message. But just like the parable, the world killed God's son. But those who killed him didn't realize who they were dealing with. Those who killed him had this much understanding of who he was. And like many of these Hebrews who were walking this way and started to turn around and look at their past, they didn't have a full appreciation and understanding of who that son is. So the writer of Hebrews now shifts to this third point and he says, listen, I want to take my time and I don't want to tell you just one. I want to tell you seven acknowledgments of the superiority of Jesus Christ. Because you need to know who he is and what he's done. Now, before we dive into these seven acknowledgments, I'm going to do something I don't normally do. But it's to prepare us all for what we're getting ready to hear. We're going to have a responsive reading. Maybe use this time to wake up if you're listening to a board, you know, this, this boring message. We're going to have three responsive readings because this text teaches us that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. What do we mean by that? If you would, respond with me. This is Westminster Shorter Catechism's questions 24, 25, and 26. First of all, how doth Christ execute the office of a prophet? Christ executeth the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. How doth Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executeth the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. How doth Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Give you a one word for each one of these. You ready? As a prophet, Jesus is our revealer. As a priest, Jesus is our redeemer. As a king, Jesus is our ruler. Let's dive into these seven acknowledgments. Now, do you see on your outline that I have the seven acknowledgments on the left side and it says prophet, priest, king on the right? So you got to be interactive here. You get a pen and you're going to draw a line from each one of these seven that's going to go to either prophet, priest, or king. You don't know which one it's going to go to until just a minute. So it's a little interactive study for you as we preach through this text. But before we dive into this, let me show you this pie chart. Okay. You see the yellow and the, and the, what is that? A light blue, a green. What is that, John? Light blue. We'll go with light blue. Okay, yellow and light blue. Okay, that, that yellow represents 5%. Okay? Now, in high school, 
I was pretty good in math. And I thought I kind of knew all the math there was to know going into college. Okay, I was pretty conceited in that way. And I actually went to college and majored in math. And I found out, whoa, there's a lot of math that I don't know. And man, you can go get your master's in this. You can get your doctorate in this. Man, I don't know near as much as I thought I did. I thought I knew a lot, but I really didn't know a lot. And you could really say it this way. I, I thought I knew a lot, but I was really only the yellow. I was really only the 5%. And the light blue, John's light blue was there for me to, to learn and to, and to study. And maybe I made a, a little more, a um, little better way than 5% once I got out of college. But man, there is so much to learn. Have you, have you ever had an experience like that? <laughs> have, have you ever said, man, I feel like I know something well, only to find out, oh, there's so much I don't know. You see, this is what's going on in Hebrews. These people who were walking and following after Christ, they were a lot like me. They thought they knew it all, but they didn't. They only knew this 5%. And because they only knew the 5%, they started to look around over their shoulder. And the writer of Hebrews is coming and saying, look, you only have a small piece of the pie. Let's get the whole pie. Because I'm telling you, if you had the whole pie, you wouldn't be looking over your shoulder. You wouldn't even be looking to the right or to the left. So what the writer of Hebrews is doing here, he, he, he wants your mind to just expand, to grow, to see who Jesus is. So he lays it out. Are you ready? Seven things that we need to know about Jesus. Here we go. You say, yes, I know Jesus is my Savior. Yes, I know he's Messiah. But what else is he? Number one. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. Wow. The psalmist teaches us that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And this text says that Jesus inherits everything that his father has. He's the heir not of some things, but of all things. And speaking of Jesus, you see it on the screen, Psalm 2. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Okay, right now, just look around. Look, go ahead and look outside. It's fine. Everything that you see is God's. When you walk out of this church today, look around. Everything that you see is the Lord's. It's Christ's. He has full possession of it there is nothing that is not his and the bible says that he is in sovereign control of everything that is his now here's some good news if you're a believer today you know what the bible says it says that we're going to be co-heirs with him one day here's what the bible says in romans 8 and if children then heirs heirs of god and fellow heirs with christ provided we suffer with him in order 
that we may also be glorified with him. Isn't that good news? Everything that Jesus has will be ours. That's why Jesus says in John 14, in my Father's house are many mansions. I go there to prepare a place for you. So where do you draw the line here? Friends, since a king rules and reigns by taking possession of things, this is a kingly function. So you can draw a line from that point to king. Number two, through whom also he created the world. Okay. Some people say, yeah, I know Jesus is my Savior. Did you also know he created the world? That when you read Genesis 1, you're actually reading about Jesus? In the Hebrew mind, in the Old Testament, the, 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 word for, the verb for creation is barah. And the Old Testament goes to great lengths to only apply bara or to create to God. That if you wanted to know who God is, that's the one who creates. And speaking of Jesus, here's what John 1.3 says. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So friends, not only does Jesus own and possess everything and rule everything, Jesus actually created all of those things. So only a sovereign God, king, could create. So again, this is a kingly function. Number three, he is the radiance of the glory of God. The radiance of the glory of God. Remember when old Peter, James, and John went up on the mountain with Jesus in Matthew 17? They saw Jesus completely transfigured. They saw the radiance and the glory of God. That's why John writes in John 1.14, we saw His glory. We saw it. You remember in the Old Testament when God's presence would come down and manifest itself over the tabernacle? And all those tribes from north, east, south, and west would look in the middle and they would see God coming down and would see the radiating glory of God. That's what John is saying about Jesus. That when we saw him, he was radiating the glory of God. A prophet reveals. So Christ's radiating glory reveals that he is a prophet. He's fulfilling that prophet function. Number four, the Bible says, and the exact imprint of his nature. This is what Colossians says. He is the image of the invisible God, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Friends, we know that Jesus had two natures. He was fully man, having flesh and blood, but he was fully and completely God. He wasn't partially God or a third God. He was holy God, homoousios, same as substance with his Father, equal in power and glory. And in the face of Jesus Christ, God himself is revealed. In the face of Jesus Christ, John 1.18 God himself is revealed. So this is the function of a prophet. A prophet reveals, and Christ's image reveals God. So this points to a prophet. Number five, 
He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Again, Colossians chapter 1. Do you, do you see how we're all over the chapter 1s, right? John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, Colossians 1. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I love that. Jesus upholds the universe. In him all things hold together. Jesus is the one who keeps this universe together. Some of you know I, I, I majored in math and, and minored in physics and education. I had, I had a time teaching of chemistry and, and physics and, and math. And when I think about those classes and the laws we would teach, the laws of, of motion, the different laws of chemistry, I think about this verse. Because it's Jesus who put those laws into place because he's the one holding everything together in a certain way. Everything rests on his shoulders. So we see that since a king upholds and rules his universe, this indeed is a kingly function. Number six, after making purification for sins, hold that verse for a second. Take that off. For just, that's, that's the answer to the question. <laughs> Giving y'all the answers before I get there. Get this. Making purification for sins. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. The Bible says that there is none righteous, no, not one. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin is death. And we were on our way to hell, but God demonstrated His own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a propitiation for our sins. God turned His wrath from us to His Son. And the Son of God purified us from our sins with His blood. His blood. Now you can put the verse up. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? What function is this, friends? This is the function of a priest. Since a priest makes purification and sacrifices for sins, this is a priestly function. And then finally, number seven. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Psalm 110 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Think about this. In the Old Testament, priests could never sit down. He always had something to do. There was always a sacrifice to make, either for himself or his family or for the people. There was always blood needed to be taken into the Holy of Holies. There was always a ritual to do. This, this guy could never sit down because his work wasn't finished. And just because he did it last year doesn't mean he didn't have to do it this year because he had to do it again and again and again. But when Jesus came, Hebrews 9.12 says he shed his blood not many times, but once, once for all. And he died on that cross, he rose from the grave, 
He ascended into, he into heaven, and guess what he did? He sat down. Why? Because it is finished. The battle is over. And Christ sits down. The first priest to ever sit down because he was done and it never needed to be repeated ever, ever again. So you can draw that line to priest and you can write, hey, the first priest that ever sat down. Friends, seven acknowledgments of the superiority of Christ. And notice with me, there's seven. Why? Because in the Bible, God's number of completion is seven. Friends, what can you take away this morning? First of all, you can know that God has spoken. And that He has spoken directly to you. Listen, long ago in the Old Testament, He sent His prophets to speak for Him. But now, He sent you His Son to give you the final word of what God is doing. Which is better? Jesus is better because Jesus is the perfect prophet, priest, and king. Think about it. As a prophet, He has revealed to you God's radiance and nature. As a priest, He has redeemed you by making purification and sacrifice for your sin and for mine. As a king, He rules us by not only creating us, but upholding us. And it's at this moment, dear friend, I want you to see just how much God loves you. Dr. Kruger once said it this way, Kings don't save their enemies. They destroy them. Right? If you're the enemy of a king, look out, because you're going to get destroyed. But the king of kings took a different route with you. He took a different route with me. And instead of destroying us, he sent us the prophets, and he sent us his son. And even though we deserve that destruction, Christ was destroyed for us on that cross, bearing our guilt, our shame, our sin. Yet he defeated it because we could never defeat it on our own. He rose that third day and he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Put the pie graph up there one more time. Where are you in your understanding of who Jesus is? Are you walking around this world with a 5%? You're trying to follow Jesus. But since you know so little of who he is, you get distracted. And you look to the right or the left. You even look behind you. And you say, that must be better than Jesus. Oh, dear friend, hear the author of Hebrews and let your mind expand. Let it blow up. See the seven, not one, the seven acknowledgments of the superiority of Christ. For if we come full circle, listen to this, if we come full circle and we really understand who Jesus is, if we apply this text to our lives, wouldn't we go to him in prayer more often? 
Because we understood He's the heir of all things? Wouldn't their doubt go away because we know that He's powerful enough to create the world? Wouldn't we know that He's fully God because we've seen His radiance and His nature through Scripture? Wouldn't their worry and their fear go away because we understand He holds the universe and if He holds the universe, He certainly holds us. Wouldn't we entrust our souls to Him because we know that He's the one that will purify our hearts? Wouldn't we depend on Him because we know that He's the only one who could sit down because He completed the work? We would trust Him and depend on Him. But friends, is this text expanding your mind on who Jesus is? As you walk through life, as you get distracted with the world, and you say, this must be better, or that must be better with Jesus, come back to this text and just live in these verses of who Jesus is. I challenge you this week, review these seven acknowledgments of the superiority of Christ. Why? Final slide. Because Jesus is better. So never, ever give up. Thank you for dealing with a long-winded preacher today. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we come to you in Jesus' name and we confess our absolute need of you. We confess that sometimes we act like we know it all, holding on to that 5%, yet we get so distracted because we haven't learned all that you are Yes, your Savior. Yes, your Messiah. But today we learn that you are the heir of all things. You are the creator. You're the one who purifies us. You're the one who sits down at the right hand of God. Lord, expand our minds and let us see how much better you are. Let us learn of you, we pray. Be with this dear congregation as they leave here today, Lord. May we all examine our hearts concerning this text. In Jesus' name, amen.